0: Hey, y'all, we need your help. We're hoping to raise $10,000 over the next few months to help cover the costs of a few current and upcoming projects. These include, but are not limited to, a complete redesign of our logo and design work for merchandise with our soon to be announced store. Your donations will also be tax deductible, as we've just turned in the paperwork towards becoming an official nonprofit. Any amount is immensely helpful, and we'll personally email each donor a thank you. Absolutely everything we do on this show is to make sure the gospel is heard throughout the world and the barrier of entry into confessional reform theology is as low as possible. So go to our show notes and click the link that says donor box at the top of the page and donate. Now, on with the show.
1: Father, Son, and Spirit as being one God, this means all of their acts are unified because they are one being. Hmm. So as God the Father, Son, and Spirit are working upon creation out of themselves, upon the creation, they're always in working divine unison. Um, But they all often play distinct roles. So on the one hand, God is unified, but on the other hand, the three persons are distinct. And each of the distinct persons often plays a different part in the divine act.
2: Welcome to the Guilt Grace Gratitude Podcast, a show devoted to bridging the gap to the historic Reformed Christian faith. Listen in as two friends, a layman Nick and a pastor Peter, discuss core doctrines of our confessional traditions with seminary and college professors, seasoned pastors, and more. These seasonal episodes exist to reach those outside the church, those in the pews, behind pulpits, and in the academy with rich truths of Reformed theology and remind ourselves weekly how the finished work of Jesus Christ changes everything. Hello, everyone. Yet once again, it's another day of fresh grace and mercy. This is the Guilt Grace Gratitude Podcast, sponsored by Logos Bible Software, where we bridge the gap to Reformed Christian theology for your listening pleasure. Today, we're on a Season 6 Introduction to Reformed Theology episode. We have Jason Vartanian on today. He's going to be helping us with the topic, the Trinity. Very important topic. And so uh, we'll jump into this episode here in a moment. So if you guys also want to go to our show notes and find some links and helpful resources and information, feel free to do so. But uh, if you just want to remember this information, you could also go to uh, YouTube if you're not already watching it now. And just so you guys know, you can subscribe to our show on YouTube. You can obviously find us on any podcast catcher. And uh, subscribe to us that way as well. We're on social media, just on Instagram and Twitter. And then, of course, we have an email if you need to reach out to us that old school way. And then um, if you need to find a local church to call home, we can help you out there. There's a link in our show notes. It's a local church finder. So um, hopefully you guys want to join a reformed church, at least a confessional church. Uh, Click that link type in your zip code. Uh, there's a few different reformed denominations to choose from and it can help you out on that as well uh, So yeah, I'll let uh we'll get into this episode this conversation we're really excited about very important topic um and so I'll let Peter further introduce our guest today Jason Vartanian.
0: Yeah so two quick notes. I know most of you were expecting Dr. Michael Horton for this. And he has uh, a family emergency. We won't divulge information until he feels um, that he needs to. So if you're expecting that name, don't be surprised. We got somebody who's even more famous and better in Dr. Jason Martinian. Uh, and also, there's a there's a slight for if you're listening to it, just just so you know, just so you're not kind of caught off guard. There's a slight audio delay on on this episode too. So if you hear delays, we didn't stop. We didn't stop talking. We're just we're trying to we're trying to roll with the roll with the technological punches as they come. So we have Dr. Jason Vartanian, his associate pastor at <clears throat> Bayview OPC in San Diego. He and his wife, Caitlin, are coastal Southern California natives and have been serving together ministry for 10 years, taking them from Encinitas to the UK and back to San Diego. They have three young children, love great food and the beach and live in Lake. He studied, Jason did at Calvary Chapel Bible College, holds an MDiv from Westminster Seminary, California, which is why he's one of the guests on this show, and is wrapping up his PhD in New Testament from Cambridge University. It's a pleasure having you on the show, Mister Vartanian.
1: Happy to be here. I'm uh, not quite a doctor yet. I've only submitted my thesis, not yet been given the
3: degree. <laughs> gotcha.
0: Well, you're you're a doctor in my eyes, so I'll call you. I'll call you a doctor, even if if uh, if Cambridge has not officially minted you yet. But so first, first question. We'll ask this uh, of all of our guests because all of our guests come from Westminster. They're either faculty. We've about three quarters of the faculty coming on this show, uh, and alumni serving across the world. So, uh, and you're you're an alumni serving uh, at a church in in San Diego. So how how did you first find out about Westminster? Because you're a Calvary Chapel Bible guy, which Westminster is not not all that close to Calvary Chapel Bible. And what was your education like at Westminster, and how did it prepare you for your ministry now?
1: Well, I first heard out about, about Westminster from a set of two brothers, Drew and David Dill. They were <laughs> big fans of the OPC, uh, big fans of Westminster in general. And they had told me about it probably about 13 years ago. And then my brother-in-law, really is the one who started introducing it to me a little more seriously when I was living in Maui. Uh, my brother-in-law, Aaron Newman, who's a church planter in San Clemente. So I've known about it for a little while. And the education was... Fantastic. Really, really enjoyed it. I think when I first got there, it was sort of a cross between sort of theological, biblical Disneyland on the one hand and kind <laughs> of like on the beach, running in the wet sand, buds training. On the other hand, it just felt like somehow they brought the two together. Yeah. Uh, really loved it, though. They stretch you, they push you, but they actually support you and offer you all that you need to succeed. So very, very valuable. Uh Certainly prepared me for ministry, prepared me for doing doctoral studies over in England. I was actually really surprised how well it did get me ready for studying in Cambridge. Mm-hmm. Felt very, very kind of at the level I needed to be right off the bat with language classes over there. Mm-hmm. It was very helpful. Yeah. Uh, for ministry in particular, the sort of understanding God Himself, understanding the world, understanding the human heart, it did great at preparing all three of those. Uh, really deep study. In the scriptures understanding of systematics historical theological development was fantastic uh understanding the world and the context things that dr horton who should have been on the show sorry for <laughs> me, <laughs> me and not him uh, he was wonderful at diagnosing kind of the problems of modernity and the questions people are actually asking the assumptions people have that are hidden things to be probed in ways that we can minister to the the word to them in a way that's more effectual helpful in language that's understandable And then also, too, just really understanding the human heart, right? Understanding your own heart as a pastor, the idols you're going to have, the difficulties you're going to have, the war within. that's going to be raging even beginning at seminary. And then understanding the heart of your people, uh, the things that they're really working through, the real-life nitty-gritty, gross, disgusting things that human beings go through and the ways that we fail and how the gospel really washes us
0: brings us in Christ. That's awesome. I want to go back to Westminster again after what jason just yeah. said yeah, i want good. to go back through this again Uh,
2: shout out to drew dill too uh so i know drew from <clears throat> trendy opc we've actually my, had my drew church on
0: our show it's like a kind of a trio we didn't really like, interview him we just kind of all had like round robin
2: <laughs> on the yeah the uh regular it. principle of worship episode but yeah i know drew and uh he actually uh let me know that you'd be okay doing this right. episode.
0: We, we had our mad dash yesterday of trying to fill in for Dr. Horden and this is the quickest we have ever confirmed an episode and turned around to record. So we are very thankful for for Jason's uh yeah. his uh, willingness to come on and Drew for turning him on to uh, onto
2: us. Yeah. And I've and I've met you before. You obviously don't remember me. It's okay. Ah, uh, you've guessed. It's preached not very it memorable much, for those who are listening <laughs> right now. It was a quick hello, but you guessed preached at um uh, before, so I appreciate that. So,
1: yeah, Drew. Um, I mean, it's funny. Drew and, and David Dill are kind of David, not as much, but Drew's a sort of secret weapon of the Southern California Presbytery the OPC. <laughs> uh, it just <laughs> brought on so many people to the Reformed faith. Sort of a sort of a non-paid, non-ordained evangelist who has you, been just you so need those. useful to church planners and people. Like,
2: yeah,
0: say that again. I agree. You you need people like Drew. There's no like. I mean, ministers are fantastic. We we are trained, but I mean, it's hard to get the word out sometimes. And you need people like Drew to get the word out, and who are really uh, invigorated with that too. Yeah. Yeah. Drew is <laughs> a great gift. Yes. Totally. Yeah, Drew, if you're listening, we like you.
2: Yeah. Uh he's up in Oregon now. So um miss seeing him at church. But uh my first question, kind of getting into the substance of this episode topic, the Trinity. Um, if you can picture, maybe um imagine that you're speaking to a group of people outside the Christian faith from various religions or non religious backgrounds. And those brand new to the Christian faith kind of going based on just describing what this is. How would you uh, help grasp and explain what the Trinity is to them?
1: You know, with most things that are new and abstract often helpful to use metaphors imagery stories analogies mm-hmm. and historically the trinity has been very very difficult to use a metaphor or analogy to explain about, <laughs> yep yep um, accidentally leading people to tritheism or sort of modalism which we're gonna Yeah, about I'm glad later. you're not doing the
0: three leaf clover kind of thing this is good
1: yeah so i think what i in all, in all honesty what i would do is i'd probably just start with the basic three Premises that you have to figure out how to fit together. So I would explain one The Bible is incredibly clear. There is one true and living God. There is no other. That's principle one Principle two, there are three persons who are God who are fully and equally divine And the number three, each person is distinct But also at the same time united as one divine being And somehow trying to help them flesh that out, understand and see the reality of how those three things come together, and yet are always going to be mysterious. So some people might think, well, that sounds like a contradiction, right? Try unity, three, mm-hmm. one. As Christians, we confess, no, it's not a contradiction. Their, their oneness and their threeness are in a distinct manner. They're not one and three in the exact same way. It's one in essence, three in persons, and it's a mystery that brings humility not contradictory is what i want to explain to
0: them Hmm. that's good um so i'm gonna i'm gonna push a little little further into this Uh, and we know the Trinity is what we call like a a creedal doctrine it's a christian doctrine so it's not like reformed versus non-reformed or whatever um if you're a christian you're trinitarian because you're a christian Mm -hmm. um but kind of digging further is there is there a distinctly Reformed way of, of viewing or understanding the Trinity? Um, is it in our confessional standards? Is it in the Westminster? How, how does Westminster talk about our triune Godhead?
1: Yeah, I mean, in many ways, there's not really, I mean, we're a Reformed Catholic, right? So yeah. if you read the Westminster Standards Confession, larger shorter catechism, if you read the Belgic Confession, you read the Heidelberg Catechism, Much of what they're going to rehash, excuse me, what what they're going to state is going to be rehashing what's already in uh, Council of Nicaea and Constantinople, which you're going to find in the Athanasian Creed. Actually, they're going to be probably abbreviated compared to the Athanasian Creed, say, for instance. Hmm. And so in that way, they're Catholic, one universal church, one holy apostolic faith. Uh, If you look at the confessions outside of their statements of the Trinity, you're going to see Trinitarian expressions of theology all throughout. Hmm. So Trinitarian outworkings of many things to say, for instance, think of um, the assurance of perseverance for a Christian, right? The Westminster standards at least are going to root and ground the assurance of the fact that we will persevere and endure until the end. And one, the father has decreed it. Hmm. Two, the son has accomplished and he is our mediator and interceding on our behalf. Three, it is the spirit who indwells us and adopt and in- testifies to us that we are adopted as sons, and he's the one who empowers us. So there's working outworkings that are very reformed, but the statements themselves are actually very hmm. creedal, to your point.
0: Hmm. Yeah. Before before Nick goes, that's I think a really helpful way of describing this. <clears throat> Something that I think is helpful for me too. Um we're growing up, it was maybe the trinity was a doctrine among many doctrines but it didn't kind of like seep its way through the rest of the doctrines I was like okay I'm a trinitarian okay let's move on with with uh with our doctrines but it it sounds like no there's not a distinctly reformed way of describing the trinity of understanding what the trinity is who it is or who who makes it or who's who's part of it or the persons of it but in how we formulate the rest of our doctrines there does seem to be maybe a, like a reformed emphasis on on seeing the trinity through through everything versus just a single doctrine within our faith does that does that make sense
1: yeah absolutely so like um bob Lethem in his book on the trinity says hey a lot of our doctrine of god has sadly sort of Talk about the Trinity in one section, attributes in another, and then the works of God in another, say, for instance. And he says, and it'd be more helpful to talk about all the doctrines of God through a Trinitarian perspective, which is helpful. But to your point, why leave it at the doctrine of God if it's the triune God himself who is doing all these things throughout the yeah. history of redemption that we look at? It doesn't need to stop just with the doctrine of God properly.
0: Totally. Yeah, that makes sense.
2: Yeah, and <clears throat> just a quick reflection on some things, because I... I'm about almost done with uh, Athanasius of Alexandria. Got through four. that fast. Holy smokes! Yeah, the the four four discourses against the Arians, and he obviously against that heresy of there once was a time when the sun was not, is what he, the, Al, Athanasius is going against. It, it obviously starts unpacking some of the Trinity because we're explaining how the Son Jesus is co-eternal with the father and how the definition of God, the father is correct. And the definition of the, the son, the second person of the Trinity is correct, even though they're both co-eternal and the Holy spirit is correct being co-eternal as well. And knowing the father begets the son and the son is the offspring of the father's essence as his word God is eternal and so is his word and spirit is eternal also. So those are kind of like little nuggets of information that I've been, and and Peter and Jason, please fill in and, and be like, actually you kind of phrase this, uh, you could phrase this better or different. Um, please do so. But I wanted to throw that in there because I was just, just this morning I was hearing that from Athanasius before my question.
1: One of the things that Calvin says that's really helpful on, eternal generation is mm-hmm. that the son in his personhood is generated from the father rather than in his essence. Okay. And so mm-hmm. he is eternally the Son, um, through the Father as a person, not in his Asaian divinity. That's that's not itself derived from the Father, which which I think is a helpful distinction.
0: That is. Yeah. Perfect.
2: Yeah. Okay. It's what I got you guys here for. So <laughs> good. <laughs> but yeah. Um So it's been said, and it's true, technically the word, the actual word, just to be transparent with everyone, Trinity is found nowhere in the pages of scripture. However, rest, rest assured, and it is, (laughs) however, we see the persons woven throughout the old and new Testament and the concept is there for sure. Uh, Many wonder if the word, if the word is not there, can the doctrine be present? How do we defend this? You know, are there particular points in redemptive history from which we can develop the uh, doctrine of the Trinity? And I think of it in scripture. Personally, I'm thinking of um, Genesis one. As soon as you start reading the Bible, you start hearing terms about talking about the Trinity with the the Holy Spirit hovering over the waters. And John one one, you hear the word became flesh and dwelt among us.
1: Yeah, so uh, other options I think would be helpful within the history of salvation would be things. I mean, you get you get clues in the Old Testament, right? And you get a lot more clarity in the New. Clues of mm-hmm. the Old, clarity in the New. Um, the clues in the Old, you often see, like you're saying, Genesis 1 and creation. The Father speaks. The Word goes forth. The Spirit completes. You see things like the angel of the Lord in Genesis 16, Hagar, Hagar. Um, cast out from a very jealous, very envious, very angry Sarai. Hagar is sitting at the well. Angel Lord comes to her, visits her, speaks and promises that her son still being a part of the promise through common grace is still going to become a nation though. He's not himself, the chosen seed. Mm. And she addresses him and speaks to him as if he is the Lord himself. You see things like Joshua meets the commander of the Lord's army. Yep. I'm actually going to be preaching on this week. So, The commander of the Lord's army, he says, take off your sandals for you're on holy ground, Joshua. And like, what does that sound like? Mm -hmm. It reminds us of another story. of like Moses, distant from Joshua. Exactly. Moses, burning bush, take off your sandals, you're on holy ground. The commander of the Lord's army, same thing. And even though our English Bibles in uh, Joshua chapter 6 break up the speech of the commander and then Yahweh's divine speech in chapter Hmm. 6 verses 2 through 5, a lot of scholars think that break is actually arbitrary, and that Yahweh speaking at the beginning of the Jericho narrative is the same speech coming from the commander of the Lord's army at the end of chapter five, which is fascinating. Interesting. See things like in the New Testament, right? Baptism of the, the Son, where Christ incarnate, God the Son, going down, coming out of the waters, the Spirit descending upon him like a dove, the yep. Father speaking. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. All three persons of the Trinity visible at the exact same time. See things like baptism in the triune name as they go forth in the Great Commission. Um, but even that, thats just. those are just even more. You think about the consummation, right? The age to come, new creation, uh, Revelation chapter 22. And in, if you compare 22 and 21, you see God the Father is said to be the Alpha and the Omega, yep. the beginning and the end, the first and the last. And we see Christ himself, the incarnate Son of God, is called the Alpha and the Omega at the beginning, the end, the first, and the last. Even more than that, both God the Father and God the Son share that one throne, the divine throne, in the new creation. And so there's all sorts of things in the history of salvation that we see. But in addition, if we think about the statements and the claims of the New Testament epistles about um, the deity of Christ, the personality of uh, the Holy Spirit, there's all sorts of other clarifying statements. And so, just to your point, though the term Trinity is a post biblical term that's come from a lot of debate and argument within the church, the reality and the doctrine of the Trinity is very much in scripture and all.
0: As you probably know, we talk a lot about Westminster Seminary, California, on here. I can't even begin to tell you the impact this institution has had on my faith, my family, and the ministry the Lord has entrusted me with. If you feel called to serve the church and want the most rigorous training for gospel ministry around, consider coming to Westminster Seminary, California, a confessionally reformed institution in sunny San Diego that offers master's degrees in biblical and theological studies, historical theology, and divinity. Westminster's approach to ministry education emphasizes a mastery of the original biblical languages, maintaining a small student-to-professor ratio, a laser focus on face-to-face education, coupled with an understanding of the importance of having pastor-scholars with decades of ministry experience train the next generation of servant leaders for the Church of Jesus Christ. If this interests you, and I hope it does... Call Westminster today at 888-480-8474 to talk to admissions counselor or visit www.wscal.edu. Again, call Westminster Seminary, California today at 888-480-8474 or log on to www.wscal.edu, which will all be available in our show notes. Westminster Seminary, California for Christ, His Gospel, and His Church. Yeah. And maybe to help our listeners too, and this is just speaking kind of from my own mindset, knowing kind of the American individualistic and like kind of empirical mindset. If if you don't see the actual thing, then I'm not going to believe it. Um, Or if I don't see the actual word, then I I can't believe it. And it, it does like we have a hard time with just like not hazy concepts, but Something that like, okay, this is this, this is this. Um, we like categorizing things and and we're not used to narrative. We're not used to poetry. We're not used to a lot of things that kind of show forth the persons of the Trinity and show forth their divine essence, all being fully, fully divine. And we <clears throat> will read the Bible as we, as we try to read like a, like a scorecard or something. Like, okay. This, this is this. And now this makes sense. Is that, is that, is that kind of makes sense?
1: Yeah, I mean, so Horton, who, again, should have been on here, he has his four Ds, right? (laughs) Um, It's the drama. We read the story, the drama, the narrative, the big, mega story of Scripture. And from that story, as we look at what happens in these events where God has revealed himself in word and deed, then we can see the doctrines by reading that as a one single coherent and consistent story and document. And from these doctrines then comes the doxology and the discipleship. Yeah. and so the trinity itself is looking at the drama seeing clear things like one there is only one true and living god yep. second again there are three distinct persons who are all fully divine mm-hmm. and somehow these are one trying god
0: yeah that's that's extremely helpful um so so go into this and these are so this is <laughs> fair warning for audience. These are these are kind of headier terms but they're they're creedal terms and, and you'll see this throughout church history and you'll see this in our Reformation documents. We'll see this in our confessions. Uh, but we want to kind of introduce these terms to our audience and, and see if you can help us understand some of these things. Even though they're they're, they're high and kind of lofty concepts, like God's incomprehensibility sounds like a big term. His simplicity, his inseparability, and there's, there's a bunch more we can go through. Uh, and they've they've really found their way back. And Nick and I have talked to Dr. Matthew Barrett last week, who who authored a book that he's kind of. Kind of bringing bring these terms back, like these are these are our terms, uh, but many many are still confused by these terms and how to describe um, God, how to describe um, how the Trinity relates to each other and how they relate to create to creation. So, for those listening who want to understand their Triune God better and how to describe Him to others, wh- why are these ways hard as they may be to understand um, God as He works and and God as He is? you can say the trinity as as they work and the trinity as as they, why is it so crucial for understanding who the trinity is and what the trinity does
1: i mean if you know god or i should i should say if god has called us to know him and being a christian is really knowing and loving god you just you want to understand him right and his attributes are part of understanding who he is these are things that you know god is infinite And there's all sorts of things about him that he has not revealed and will yet be revealed perhaps in the age to come. But he's decided to reveal some key and very distinct things for us to know about him now and today. And so those things that he has decided to reveal that are sufficient for us to understand and make sense for us to take the time to really grasp them. Uh, Those things that you said, like incomprehensibility, those are really, really helpful. Uh, Van Til, really big on incomprehensibility. Mm -hmm think about that in a couple different ways right god is infinite literally without bounds in Mm -hmm. who he is and so we as finite creatures can never comprehend the infinite being like he if there is no end to who he is we can never fully comprehend who he is in his fullness that's Mm in one hand in the second hand too in his divinity because he is qualitative difference in his transcendence above us and being greater than us we can never comprehend him in kind of any of his attributes, it's always analogy. There's always reality and then also things that we can't fully grasp, even if he's revealed himself to okay. us. So the incomprehensibility of God is, I mean, it's just to think about the incomprehensibility of God and the age to come. You're going to be alive eternally.
3: Mm-hmm. You're
1: going to be worshiping and loving and understanding a God to who there is no end whatsoever, and that you will never fully comprehend Him. And the more that you know him and love him and understand him, the more joy that you will have in him and the higher your satisfaction goes. And so incomprehensibility then becomes this key facet for why your life eternally will be unending, ever deepening joy and satisfaction in knowing the God that we love. I mean, that's a very practical Mm. outworking of a very heady doctrine. Totally. um, that is, just leads you to worship and it also gives you hope, right? It, it's this is something I'm approaching. This is something this God is bringing to me and this helps me to endure and persevere.
0: Hmm. Um, uh, yeah, keep going. Keep Sorry. Going.
1: Did you want me to talk about simplicity and inseparability?
0: Yeah, I think, yeah, especially, especially, yeah, simplicity and separability, because I think those are very misunderstood today.
1: Yeah, I mean, simplicity is very simply, God is not composed of parts. There is no... So one way that people try to make God composed of parts unknowingly is they'll say, okay, well, this, um, this part of the scriptures, God is very judgmental and he's just angry. Mm-hmm. This part of God acting, God is just full of love and he's always and he's merciful here. Yeah. But unknowingly, we sometimes try to act as if there's parts of God that are happy, parts mm. of God that are angry, parts of God that are gracious parts of God that are just Yeah. when in reality, simplicity reminds us God is not composed or divided in any sense of parts. He is always fully loving, fully just, fully righteous in everything that he does. And he eternally has existed in that way. And that's a, again, that's useful as we're tracing out Mm -hmm. and thinking through who God is, why he's doing what he's doing, how he's done it. And is he, is he just here, right? Is he full of love here? Yes, he is at all times. Um, Another thing is inseparability. This one's a little more... um,
0: (laughs) This one's rough.
1: (laughs) Yeah, this is... Okay, so again, the finite, my very small brain, cannot comprehend the infinite, right? And there's always going to be things that are mystery. Bobbing says very famously, at the bottom of every doctrine, the deeper you go, you will always hit the bottomless pit of mystery. Mm. There's always going to come some point where revelation itself has been understood clearly and trying to work out applications, implications of that is going to result in things that we cannot say. And there's mystery there. And so in God's inseparability, father, son and spirit is being one God. This means all of their acts are unified because they are one being. Hmm. So as God, the father, son and spirit are working upon creation out of themselves upon the creation They're always in working divine unison, Um, but they all often play distinct roles. So on the one hand, God is unified, but on the other hand, the three persons are distinct, and each of the distinct persons often plays a different part in the divine act. So we think of things like creation, like I already said, right? The Father speaks, God the Son is the word of that speech, the Spirit is the one who then brings to completion and perfection of creation, You think of things like the incarnation, right? God the Father is the one who sends. The Son is the one who joyfully is sent and goes and incarnates. And the Spirit is the one who then conceives the Son in the Virgin Mary to become the incarnate Messiah. You think of things like Pentecost, right? The Spirit is sent by the Father through the Son for the history of redemption to take place for the gospel to God to the nations. Each one fully involved, but each one often playing a different role. Hmm. Again, it's really... You got to be careful with analogies. Yeah. If you watch a Laker game, say for instance, right, (laughs) you're going to have one team always acting on the court. It's composed of five players. Each act of every player is a reflection of the whole team, but each the point guard is doing something different than the center. Mm -hmm. They have a distinct role on the team, but they are still one team. Now, again, that's going to break down. Yeah. That's going to cause problems. You try to take that too far. I gotcha. Hopefully, that's a helpful picture of the design. Yeah.
0: Before before Nick goes, and maybe this is helpful to to provide a contrast for our audience too because I've, I've heard and this this tends to come from kind of like the deconstructing groups where if god's incomprehensible then you can't know him at all therefore he's like kind of aloof and he's he's not somebody that we can ever understand at all when like you're saying it's no it's it means there's the fullness of him we will never know um fully but we we, the, the, we can know because if we're if we if we've how do i say this if if we've said he's incomprehensible, then that's something we like. We know by by negative. We, we, we know something that he's not as well. Does that make sense? Yeah. There's a difference between incomprehensible and unknowable, right? Yeah. Um, he
1: is. So a, a helpful phrase that is we can never comprehend God, but we can apprehend God. Okay. Right. We can never know him in his fullness, but we can understand him in the way that he has revealed himself. So, yes, God is transcendent. He is infinitely beyond us and greater than us. Yet he has condescended from that transcendent state, come all the way down, accommodate Excuse me, accommodated himself and chosen to reveal himself to us in language, imagery, truth that makes sense to us. That we as finite creatures can grasp and understand, though never perfectly. And so that's where that whole doctrine of analogy comes in, right? Mm. There is something that is true. But there's also something missing that we do not fully grasp
0: okay yeah and then with simplicity um like you said i I love how you described it is sometimes we can act like there are times that like well that's the just god working here and that's not the merciful that's not a whatever Mm -hmm. like as if those are separate from each other as if he's like kind of pulling this attribute for here um, which is different, this that and the attribute, this is different than this attribute. So you kind of aggregate all that stuff up and then voila, you got God. Does that does that make sense?
1: Yeah, yeah. Um He's always been just, he's always been loving. There's different different acts of God are manifestations of different attributes in different yeah. ways, but he's always still full of love and justice, right? Even even when we think about hell and separation from the God of life. God's pouring out his wrath and his justice, but he is still the God of love at the same time. That act of justice may not be the same sort of demonstration of his love as you saw on the cross where he was also pouring out hell and wrath on his son in love to save sinners, but he is still that same God of love even in the later eschatological act of justice in the age to come.
0: Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And then inseparability is we can sometimes, um, Practically sound like modalists, or like different, like God is working in a different mode, or tri even though we some people wouldn't call themselves that, but the way they talk about how the Trinity works out can can sound tri theistic, like they each have different acts from each other that aren't connected in any way to each other. Is that is that helpful or it makes sense as well? Uh, tritheism and modalism are not
1: helpful. That's for no, sure. yeah, yeah. Um, but is
0: that is that helpful to like provide the negative contrast?
1: Yes, yeah, yeah. So inseparability um, can be contrasted with those two at the background for sure.
0: Okay, cool.
1: Did you did you want to get into those what those two things those two errors are?
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I think I, it might be a little bit helpful because especially with the inseparability. Um, being a harder doctrine for people to understand. Um, yeah. How can some of like, how can that go awry theologically? And even people aren't like trying to be tri or trying to be modalists, the way they talk about how the Trinity works can sound like it. Does that, is it? But yeah. So maybe you can kind of explain some of that stuff too.
1: Yeah, for sure. I mean, so most of you'll read on the Trinity will always say throughout the development of the church reflecting on, on God's tri-unity the East has tended to emphasize one thing, and the West huh. has tended to emphasize the other. The East, especially with the kind of Cappadocians, has tended to emphasize the, the threeness of who God is. The West, on the other hand, in particular with Augustine, has tended to emphasize the oneness of who God is. And so both of those have errors, right, if they go too far. Both are true. Yeah. God is fully three. God is completely one. But you can fall into error with both. The oneness of God error is what we call modalism, as we've been referring to. Yeah. This is the analogy where God is kind of more like a shapeshifter or he puts on different masks. It's not one God and three persons, it's one God in one person who likes to wear different clothes at different times, right? He likes to be the father sometimes, and then sometimes he likes to be the son, sometimes he likes to be the spirit. Of course, they would are they would say for different reasons at different times, so that's clearly an error given sure, what we discussed yeah. already. Um, you see manifestations of this today, say, for instance, in oneness, Pentecostalism, where there's mm-hmm. an emphasis on the oneness of God to the damage of the distinctness of God. Yeah. And this is a really how do you, if you if you're a modalist, how do you come to grips with the father pouring out his wrath on the son? How do you come to grips with the, the son coming to obey and please the father? How do you come to grips with the spirit empowering the son to do that obedience for the father and performing those miracles or the spirit raising the person of the son to the glory of the father in that new creation existence it's sort of the the three distinct persons interrelating and interacting is so fundamental to the storyline of scripture mm. i actually don't i don't know how they begin to try to explain yeah work totally things, no. yeah uh, but the other hand would be the tritheist right where uh, this is what you see for like modern lds kind of creation yep. Though that LDS may affirm billions and billions of gods are even way older than Yahweh, who are all men in some sense, but the sort of three gods today would be what Mormons think. And that's it's, that's not that's not one God and three persons, that's three gods and three persons, right? Each right. one is fully divine, but each one is not just distinct but completely separate. Yeah. And you know you have three Infinite beings who are totally distinct, or excuse me, totally separate from one another, which is in itself, I think, problematic. Three infinite beings, all being separate, is hard to comprehend. Um, and in addition, I think when you're a tritheist, I should say most people when they're tritheists functionally become kind of subordinationist, right? Yep. They may say all three gods are yep. equal, but then most people try to always make the father kind of the top dog. The yep. sun, the second ring, and the spirit kind at the bottom, and so there's a lot of problems with tritheism as well because Scripture says very clearly there is one God, only one true living God. There is no other.
0: Mm-hmm. Totally, yeah, and that's yeah, those are yeah, really helpful. Which is why, although hard to understand and to articulate, some of these terms are really, really helpful for a doctrine of God, for a doctrine of the Trinity. And if we if we blend or forget or say we don't need these terms, let's just. Let's just do our own thing. We'll we'll tend to fall on one of these tracks, whatever it may be.
2: Yeah. Real quick before my question, I do this a lot where I reflect on something and then go into my question. But Peter asked something earlier that I thought was good. And I've been kind of thinking about is as reformed Christians, yes, trendy is obviously ecumenical as Christians, creedal. Um, But as reformed Christians, do we, do we, are we able to grasp it in a way that kind of is also kind of our reform way of affecting our entire understanding of theology? And I was thinking just of who God is. Obviously there's one God and, and we're talking about him being Trinitarian and I've going back to the understanding of the covenant of redemption. So the covenant of redemption, obviously talking about the father planned, the son achieved and the spirit applied. They're all on the same agreement. There wasn't disagreement. Um, the father wasn't dragging the son kicking and screaming into doing the atonement. There was all full agreement that it was going to happen and how it was playing out. And the covenant of redemption is that in in eternity, that agreement of how redemption was going to play out. And, um, Through the three persons of the Trinity, still one God. And really God is a relational God. God is love. If there's only with deism, if there's just one God without a Trinity, um, there wouldn't be a relationship there. There would be no love there. Cause who is he going to have a relationship with or love? So he is still one God, but he's Trinitarian because he's able to, um, Eternally have a relationship and love within the Trinity. Is that all pretty good reflection? Correct.
1: Yeah, I think that's really helpful, Nick. Um, I was thinking about this actually before our conversation. So God, God being triune, God being covenantal, and the greatest commandment being love do seem to be somewhat interrelated, like you're saying, right? Triunity means an inherent community and oneness and love mm-hmm. and relationship and bond. Think of covenant. Covenant isn't inherently relational. There's suzerain and vassal. There's a relationship that's happening there. There's two persons. And then the greatest commandment being love is relational. Other regard, outward focus, counting them as more significant than yourself. And so it's no surprise that the God who is triune, three in one, is the God of covenant who then commands the greatest commandments to be love. It's uh, they, they do seem to be interrelated in a very basic sense
2: Cool. very nice
0: quick little plug for our own podcast here if you are an individual and you want to help donate for this work you can go to our show notes to our patreon page as well as our spotify donations page if you want to make a recurring donations they're either 15 or 20 dollars a month or a single donation you can also do that as well Those really help us on the back end to give to this work, to keep up our website, to make sure we can pay. Those who help with our editing, with our software, with our merchandising, all all those good things. If you're a potential sponsor and you want to sponsor us and and fill out one of our ads, you can email us at guiltgracepod at gmail.com and we can talk through some of the options that we have. And we would love to work with both individuals and publishers, institutions, seminaries, whoever it may be as we all work towards our mission originally gap to reform
2: Christian theology. Yep. Help expand our work and be a bridge builder. And so we talked about the creeds and the creeds clarifying what the Bible says. And they were created, yes, after the Bible, and they have Trinitarian language in them. So creeds, um, bringing it into this question, is it necessary to believe in the Trinity to be Christian? What happens when we either deny the full deity to either Father, Son, or Holy Spirit, or treat them as three modes of God, or completely separate them into three different gods, like you are giving some examples um, of that?
1: Yeah, I think one helpful way to to carefully state it would be, in the 21st century, you cannot be a Christian and consciously non-Trinitarian. In the 21st century, you cannot be a Christian and consciously mm. non-Trinitarian.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: So pretend you're on an airplane doing some kind of C23C and 23D evangelism. Right? You're next door to somebody. You got them for an hour, captive audience. You get in the conversation about where they're going, what they're doing, who they are. They ask you what you're doing. You go to church. Gospel comes up. Why Are you Christian? What do you think about Christianity? I'm a Christian. Is that crazy to you? Like, what do you think? You know, all of a sudden you get into like, well, okay, how do you define the gospel? What is the gospel? And you get into all that, right? And this yeah. pretend, pretend this person converts, right? And all of a sudden they're like, hey, I need to come to faith. I believe that Jesus Christ died for my sins, rose from the dead, and if I trust in Him alone for salvation, I will be justified. Boom! It happens, right, on the spot. And then, and then, thirty seconds later, the pilot's like, uh, sorry guys, uh, we're getting some turbulence. And all of a sudden, two minutes later, looks like you guys are crashing. Three minutes later, you're hitting the water, everybody's dead, right? Crazy, crazy illustration. But that person didn't become a Trinitarian, likely as you had mm. the gospel conversation, and it shifted to now the plane is going down. Can that person be saved? Will they embrace Christ and all the fullness of his promises by faith alone? I think they're a Christian. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But they're never a Trinitarian. I think they're saved. I think they're going to be in heaven. But let's just pretend a little bit later. The plane doesn't go down. They get off the plane. They see a Jehovah's Witness or whatever. They get become L- they're like, oh, I just became a Christian. They become LDS. Now they're a consciously anti-Trinitarian person, no longer a Christian, never were. And so uh, that's an important distinction. You hmm. cannot be a Christian and consciously non-Trinitarian. If you deny the deity of the Son, if you deny the deity of the Spirit, or if you are any of these kind of Trinitarian errors, I don't think you're a Christian in this day and age.
2: And also the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is an unforgivable sin.
1: Nick, I lost you there. All I heard oh. was blasphemy of the Holy Spirit.
2: <laughs> yeah. the And a terrifying part of the Bible is de, is the denial and the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is an unforgivable sin.
1: That, yeah, that is. Sorry, are you asking a question? Or are you just making a comment?
2: Yeah, I was just seeing what you would respond based on on that because that kind of goes with people that wouldn't um, that would deny the Trinity, change it, how it is. Being consciously untrinitarian, like you're saying, um, would go into them denying the Holy Spirit. Essentially, is that correct?
1: Got it. Yeah, I mean to scripture is super clear, right? Acts chapter four, um, Ananias and Sapphira, um, you have not lied to man, but to God, the spirit is a person. You can grieve the spirit and so deny either the personality or the divinity of the spirit. I think you're one counter biblical too, and you're not a Christian.
0: Right. So I'm going to not like this car. I think this conversation has been, has been tremendously practical, but I, I, I wonder too, if, this is goes into to my last question, and and as we as we hopefully land this plane without crashing this plane, um, <laughs> as as we as we think about uh, the Trinity kind of in in our in our prayers, because we're, we're taught how to pray. Jesus t- teaches us how to uh, how to pray in the Lord's Lord's prayer and, and preaching, and there's a lot of ways we can we can go about this. But I think for kind of average Christian, um, they wonder whether consciously or not, like how do how do I pray to the Father or Sons, but do I pray to the Father? Do I pray to the Son? Spirit, how do like, how do they work in this? Um, uh, so oop, that was that was Nick's question. I, I'm gonna go yeah. to I'm gonna go to my question. This, <laughs> I was gonna say I I go read on. the I read the wrong number. Um, it's okay. so this is actually my last question. Um, throughout the season, we'll we'll, we'll describe in detail God's salvation His elect, the covenants, and more. Um, that's that's kind of the the episodes coming up immediately. Um, so and you've already you've already kind of described this maybe as we've talked about with how the reform confessions weave, see, see the Trinity weave through all of our, our doctrines. Um, so how, like, maybe, how does this actually work out? We, we see this in salvation, but is like, is it just salvation? I know that saying just is kind of a weird way of describing it, but how, how do we see the Trinity weave throughout redemptive history? How do we see this weave throughout the doctrine? They don't have to go through all the doctrines of, of course, but just in general, how, how do we see the Trinity worked out in our, our doctrinal formulations.
1: Yeah. I mean, most people, I should say a lot of kind of theology nerds like myself, love the classic John Murray text, right? Accomplish, uh, redemption, yep. Accomplish, and applied. Yep. Fantastic book. Very short, very biblical. And if we can maybe expand that title, to redemption, a creed, uh, redemption, decreed, redemption, accomplished, redemption, applied redemption, consummated. Hmm. I think that would kind of give us a sort of, um, macro lens to think through the whole of the Trinitarian work, at least giving us a framework of how to describe the Trinitarian work. And so, uh, redemption decree would, would most kind of sit with the father. You'd often look at things like we talked about election, God predestining and for ordaining the salvation of the fallen lump of sinners. Think of things like, uh, God creating, Think of things like providence with the power of the father controlling all things. You think of the father sending, like we discussed in the pact of salutus, excuse me, the covenant of redemption, the father commissioning and sending the son. These are very kind of father, God the Father oriented works within the Godhead. Mm-hmm. For the Son, again, we think of things like him joyfully going within his his place in the covenant of redemption, him joyfully, willingly, lovingly choosing to be sent and to go. Him incarnating and taking on human nature, adding humanity to his divinity, him obeying his own law, suffering by his own creation and his fallen creatures in that broken and diseased world. Things like the son is the one who then satisfies the father's wrath on the cross in substitutionary atonement for sinners. The son is the one who then dies and is buried for a time. The son is the one who first is the first fruits of the resurrection, bringing this human nature into glory, into the sphere of heavenly existence, for the realm of the new creation. The Son is the one who then ascends and brings that new human nature into heaven before the throne of God. At the actually, really, at the end of the day, seated on the throne of God, He's the one then who intercedes as our advocate and as our mediator. He's the one who will return in judgment to destroy all evil forever, and He's the one who will return who will rule from the throne in new creation eternally. And then you think about the place of the Spirit. He's the one who then, so sorry, the Father is the one who decrees, plans, begins redemption. Mm -hmm. The Son is the one who comes and accomplishes redemption through that work of life, death, resurrection, ascension. And then the Spirit is the one who applies that. He comes and as the gospel, he well, first, he stirs a gospel minister or a Christian to preach and declare that saving message of life, death, and resurrection for sinners justified by faith alone. And then somebody hears that, and the Spirit then works in them, effectually calls them and summons them, gives them a new heart to have that gift of faith and believe and embrace the gospel, unites them to Christ, and then they are justified, sanctified, adopted. And then that same Spirit is the one who helps them to obey, to mm. persevere, is the one who then uses preaching later on and the means of grace and the sacraments and the church to grow them and mature them. And He's the one, at the end of the day, will then bring their Spirit after they die to glorification, free from sin. And then he'll also bring the resurrection of the body. And then all of them will be working together in the consummation where we as human beings, after the second coming, it's the new heavens and new earth, father, son, and spirit. I am your God. You are my people, perfect communion. Hmm. And so there's distinct roles as we've talked about, but they're always inseparable. Mm-hmm. They're always interrelated and connected though. They play different parts in what they accomplish for their own glory and for the salvation of sinners.
0: Hmm. That's good. Yeah, I would very much encourage whoever's listening right now to pause right <laughs> now. I'll give you a pause. And then rewind it three minutes and then, or however long that was, and then re-listen to that because that's that's one of the most succinct explanations yeah. of the of the Trinitarian work that I've heard. And I think it's really helpful for, again, like we said at the beginning of this podcast, this episode, the Trinity is not, I mean, it, it, it is one doctrine among many, but don't just, cord enough to okay now I know that this is Trinity. Now let's move on to the rest of theology. Now let's move on to the rest of redemptive history. You want to see how it works out. That was that was incredible. So um uh, Nick can now take the question that I so rudely took from him.
2: No, that was good. Peter mentioned that I was actually gonna say the exact same thing Peter said. I was gonna say for the audience <laughs> that was a perfect spot to re-listen yeah. to um that very very helpful. And actually yeah. since I'm speaking to the audience right now it's just I on a note on another note, if you guys are familiar with Saint Augustine and you go to Book thirteen of Confessions, uh, he does exp- he does talk about the Holy Trinity, and he he helps try to explain it and associate it in an obviously, uh, infinitely smaller scale that we would understand based on, um, what as human beings, we are um made is with we are being knowledge and will and uh i'm not saying that that's equal with the triune god at all but uh, saint augustine kind of says that in a way that we can kind of kind of wrap our brains about it a little bit um if you guys have a comment um about that feel free to jump go read augustine book 13 (laughs) yeah (laughs) um but i do have my last question um P- you probably already know what it is. You got a Peter, preview of it already. Of it. <laughs> so so that's so, his, actually
0: his, his way of asking it, which is better than mine. So
2: no, no worries. This is a, I always end everything on practical notes. So prayer is essential. We talked about God being a relational God. And especially if we're in Christ, we're under that veil of love and grace. So we know we need to pray. That's part of a relationship. So we know God is one. But then, when we're praying, we're like, Are we praying to God the Father? Are we go- praying to Jesus Christ, uh, ascended, and 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 at the right hand of the Father, or um, and or are we praying praying to the Holy Spirit? So, and even in um, Jesus's instruction of how we pray, he says, "Pray like this, our Father." So, is there practical advice and even theologically, what's going on when we're praying with the three pe- three persons of the Trinity, and their role? I guess.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Great question. Um, I heard it explained once that we think about redemption, like we just talked about from the father through the son, by the spirit, redemption kind of coming down in that way. Mm. And then we can think equally of communion with God as ascension of our request going up through that same chain. Mm. So if it's from the father through the son, by the spirit, we come to God up in ascension by the spirit, through the son, to the father. Hmm. And so uh, when I was in seminary, I was in a prayer group with Dr. Horton, Dr. Clark, Ryan Blomsrud, Dr. Blomsrud. And they would always be praying that way hmm. to the father, through the son, by the spirit was often how they would articulate mm-hmm. it. was very, very helpful. Uh, now, all three persons that we talked about are equal substance, the same in power and glory, right? Yeah all three father son and spirit are fully god and can be objects of our address and prayer of adoration praise petition all those things i think we can speak to them but to your point uh, to follow christ's example which he gives to his disciples as a pattern for prayer we're praying to to our heavenly father first and so that i think is really useful though we can address any three i personally find helpful that um Just understanding those distinct acts of the Trinity. Again, the Father does this, the Son does this, the Spirit does this. It helps us to think through how God works when we pray. If we pray for wrestling through a certain sin that we just cannot get off, right? We're asking God to change us, the Father, for His glory. We're asking to be conformed into the image of the Son, we're begging the spirit for his power for us to put that sin to death and to put on Christ to be then useful to the father. And so there's things like that, that are really helpful practically when we pray that even just clarify how we make a request, how we praise and uh very, very beneficial.
0: Hmm. That's awesome. So last question we ask for all the guests in season six, whether they be faculty at Westminster or whether they're alumni serving in churches or uh, as of the professor. So where where can people find Bayview? Give us some information about the church. People are interested in, oh, I want to hear this guy preach. I want to hear the senior pastor preach. I want to, I want to be part of a fellowship of people who believe this kind of thing. So yeah, just plug plug your church, plug plug what you do, and, and maybe even um, what your dissertation is so people can buy it for $200 when it comes out. Yeah, uh,
1: Bayview is an Orthodox Presbyterian church in South San Diego. We're about 12 minutes from Petco Park. Mm. city of chula vista we've been a church for about 70 years oh Uh, wow okay been here for a long time very very wonderful church gospel preaching well-taught well-loved people i'm an associate pastor here Uh, pastor roger wagner has been here for 40 years he's going to be retiring in the fall and i'll be Mm. taking over for him as the lead minister yeah a great great group of people very warm very loving very gospel-centered love the scriptures love the promise of grace and the forgiveness of sins and the gospel and with any visitors, uh, if you are in the local area, please come on by, bring your non-Christian friends, bring your nominal mm-hmm. uh, Christian friends. We, we want to get to know you. We want to love you. We want to serve you. We want to come alongside of you. Uh, my my thesis is on the book of Revelation. It started out as a project on how Christ and Adam are as that. John the Apostle, in some ways, portrays Jesus as a sort of Adam-like figure, but it got reoriented and recasted to be uh, a very sort of thesis analysis <laughs> of yeah. all of the illusions even in the book of Revelation. Mm-hmm. So, great, really fun project, really enjoyed it. Uh, gave me a deeper confidence in the unity, the beauty, and the authority of God's Word
0: nice that's awesome and fun fact for audience i looked up your advisor uh jonathan Leinbaugh, and we had him on the show last summer so if, yeah. if people want to hear from your advisor great then career, go great, to great. it's like last may i think we had him on for my brain's farting right now i forget which which book it was it was the one he came out with last last year with erdman's um it was on paul because i think he does a lot of stuff on oh paul. he's
1: calling his, his essays on paul
0: yeah. yeah yeah that's a
1: that's a great book yeah really Jono is a fantastic writer fantastic he's advisor. ridiculously
0: talented writer. oh my gosh yeah
1: yeah and he's just uh anyways if you haven't ever read Jono's stuff please read him listen to his preaching his preaching is great really really good
0: awesome well awesome. soon to be I'll say uh soon to be minted Dr. Vartanian I'll we'll call you Reverend Vartanian right now um, thanks for coming on on sh- such short notice. Yeah. Thank uh, you, you, so much. You, uh, you batted well for Dr. Horton. We, we, uh, yeah. we called you in the pinch hit and you, you, uh, it, was a good, it was good. was good. Like, a, yeah, it was a good, a good knock. I I, 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 we really appreciate uh, you coming on and, uh, and talking to our audience about the Trinity. Yeah. Thank you.
1: Hey, pleasure to be on guys. Thank you so much for asking.
0: Thank you. Of course. Hope you enjoyed today's episode in our season six introduction to reform theology, where all of our guests come from Westminster Seminary California, either current faculty or alumni who come from and graduated from Westminster and are serving institutions in churches and academies in the U.S. and all across the world. When we talk about reform theology through the lens of our confessional tradition—Westminster, the Heidelberg, Belgic, and the Kansas of i myself. I'm a graduate of westminster i'm heavily influenced obviously by the institution and love to share this information with those who don't know this tradition as well
2: yeah and myself as a layperson, theologically interested in in reformed theology this has been extremely helpful this season and then the previous seasons the last few years in the book clubs but particularly the the focus of this season whether you're a layperson or not, uh, having all the guests come from Westminster Seminary, California has been helpful. And you'll get an understanding of why that seminary has been so influential to obviously Peter, but myself. And most especially, uh, my pastor at my church is a Westminster Seminary, California graduate. Yeah, so if you guys
0: wanna find us, one of the easiest ways of helping us out is to find us on Apple or Spotify, whatever podcast catcher, but especially those two rate and review us. And if you can share us, share an episode, share a season with your friend. That's that's usually how we how we uh, build our our crowd.